This audio teaching is provided by Segula.net. You are listening to Session 19, Spiritual Warfare, Part A, from the series Ruach HaKodesh, Holy Spirit. This session was recorded live at Beit Sur Fellowship. Today we're on Session 19. Um, we'll be talking about spiritual warfare. Uh, the last session was talking about the power of the Holy Spirit, and this is a related topic in that a lot of people associate uh, the power of the Holy Spirit with spiritual warfare, and um, we'll talk about how that works. So a rough outline of what we want to cover, and we're only going to go through the first half tonight. Uh, and then next time we'll go through the rest. Um, so we'll talk about just kind of introducing the topic of spiritual warfare. What does that mean? Um, and then what does it mean to different people uh, in different Christian groups today? Um, to some people it means different things than to other people. And uh, then touching on some of these concepts that come up in the topic of spiritual warfare, uh, territorial spirits, uh, deliverance ministries, symbolic ritual actions, um, and then we're going to next time be um, looking at specific verses that use uh, this warfare military metaphor to talk about our spiritual life and and we'll talk about what that means um, in more detail next time. Uh, so, yeah, for today, um, so the phrase spiritual warfare is not found anywhere in Scripture in those words, right? But we do see uh, the concept come out in a few passages. And, of course, one of the most vivid and well-known passage is Ephesians 6. So I'm just going to read Ephesians 6, starting in verse 10. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers of over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand firm. Stand, therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith, with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the Spirit, with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. So, um, perhaps this is stating the obvious, but I just want to point out that this is a metaphor, right? Um, Paul's using the metaphor of armor and warfare to describe an aspect of our life as believers. We don't, it's not literal armor, and we don't literally go out wrestling demons to the ground, right? Um, it's not a physical battle, right? Uh, 
Um, just thought I'd point that out. But nonetheless, there's a very real sense in which we as believers are in a constant struggle between that which is aligned with God and his purposes and that which is not. Now, a side note, in the picture uh, is trying to show a Roman suit of armor. I don't know if you've ever heard the idea that Paul's actually describing the garments of a high priest. Um, you know, the high priest's head, head gear, his turban, um, his breastplate. Um, well, what's the sword? Well, the Greek word for sword and the Hebrew word herev is the same as the word used for a butcher knife. So, uh, the, the one uh, flaw in that theory is the shield. Where does the shield show up in the high priest's outfit? Uh, that's, that's the other problem. And, and shoes, too. Now, note that it doesn't, um, this translation adds the word shoes in, but it doesn't literally say shoes. It's more like um, having your feet fitted with readiness through the gospel of peace, because in the temple they were barefoot, of course, right? So, I don't know. Um, there are some problems with that, but uh, that's a theory out there, is that he's actually not just talking about Roman um, armor, but alluding to the high priest's garments. Uh, anyway, and Paul's actually quoting from some uh, verses in Isaiah, where he's talking about, uh, well, we'll look at that more next time. Um, but yeah, there's this, this battle that's going on, right? Uh, Paul's describing... Um, the need to to stand firm against the schemes of the devil and, you know, to put out his flaming darts and things like that. Uh, and so there's, and this the battle that we have is not with flesh and blood, meaning what? What is flesh and blood? People. Yeah, not with people. Um, so... Our struggle isn't with people, it's with, and then Paul lists these things, the rulers, authorities, um, powers, cosmic powers, spiritual forces. So there's a, there's a struggle, but it's not a struggle with other people, it's a struggle in a spiritual realm. So there's this spiritual realm that's normally hidden from our view, although occasionally we catch vivid glimpses of it. And that happens sometimes in scripture, right? Especially with the prophets or you think of the book of Revelation where, you know, suddenly this guy gets this incredible vivid experience of the spiritual realm that's going on that you don't normally get to see, right? And in that realm, a struggle exists between the forces of good and the forces of evil. And this battle has a tangible impact on the physical world and the lives of human beings. There are forces at work behind the scenes, and often we as humans are completely oblivious to it all. Most humans in our society live their lives without paying heed to the spiritual realm, but as followers of Yeshua, we're thrown into the heat of that battle, right? And we have an enemy, and the world is currently under his domain, right? So we see that in, like in 1 John 5.19, the whole world lies in the power of the evil one, in John, in a couple places, Satan is called the ruler of this world. Ephesians 2.2, 2, Satan is the prince of the power of the air. 2 Corinthians 4.4, 4, Satan is the god of this age. 
First Peter 5, 8, the devil is a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. So there's an enemy and this battle that's being waged um, by siding with Yeshua, we are being made, we, we have a very um, real enemy that confronts us then. So, uh, we have taken sides against the darkness and aligned ourselves with God's light and truth. And that stand elicits a response from the enemy. Hence, Paul's admonition to properly equip ourselves to withstand the devil's schemes. So, most Christians would agree with everything I've said up to now. Um, at least, I hope so. Uh, I, I mean, it's there in the Bible. So... I hope people would agree. Um, but some Christian groups take this concept in a different direction than others do, right? Um, for some, spiritual warfare is a much bigger deal than it is. Um, well, what I would say is some people take it beyond just a metaphor, right? It's not just a metaphor of our spiritual lives. This is, this is uh, something bigger, right? Uh, the Pentecostal movement, which began at the beginning of the 1900s, brought with it an increased emphasis on spiritual warfare and casting out demons. Uh, this emphasis became much more widespread in the late 1900s with the rise of the neo-charismatic movement, which took spiritual warfare to a whole new level. So since, uh, um, from what I can tell, especially since the 1990s, spiritual warfare has become a really hot topic um, with... Um, and one of the hallmarks of this new emphasis on spiritual warfare has been the development of specific strategies and tactics in spiritual warfare. Um, spiritual warfare is not just living your life as a believer, but it's, oh, we need to develop tactics to actually combat these evil spiritual forces that are going on. And so you see some of these modern tactics like spiritual mapping. Has anyone ever heard that term thrown around, um, territorial spirits. So the idea that you can map out uh, the spiritual terrain and um, there are different demons that are uh, have charge over different geographical areas or things like that, or buildings or um, locations. Uh, deliverance ministries, uh, bigger emphasis on deliverance ministries. I mean, that's been around for some time now, but... Uh, I think with the neo-charismatic movement, it became uh, more widespread and um, an emphasis on not just uh, casting out demons from people who are possessed by demons, but also delivering people from demonic oppression um, and legal declarations, symbolic actions, these kinds of things work together. So spiritual mapping, territorial spirits, um, one of the big proponents was C. Peter Wagner, um, who was uh, a important, played an important role in the beginning of the neo-charismatic movement. Um, he talks about strategic level spiritual warfare, which involves the practice of learning the names and assignments of demonic spirits as the first step to effective spiritual warfare. So we, we don't just... Uh, um, go around blindly casting out demons, we try and learn their names, we try and learn what, what, what their jobs are, and then we use that information to um, 
be more strategic in our um, casting out demons and making declarations and, and things like that. Um, so here's a description that I got from a very reliable source, Wikipedia, <laughs> which I know you're not supposed to quote Wikipedia, but I thought it did a decent job of summarizing it, and it's a popular level explanation, so um, I thought I'd go with that. So spiritual mapping or mapping involves research and prayer either to locate specific individuals who are then accused of witchcraft or to locate individuals, groups, or locations that are thought to be victims of witchcraft or possessed by demons against which spiritual warfare is then waged. Peter Wagner claims that this type of spiritual warfare was, quote, virtually unknown to the majority of Christians before the 1990s. According to Wagner, the basic methodology is to use spiritual mapping to locate areas, demon-possessed persons, occult practitioners, such as witch witches and Freemasons, or occult idols, uh, idol objects like statues of Catholic saints, which are then named and fought using methods ranging from intensive prayer to burning with fire. I'm, I'm assuming it's just the objects they burn with fire, not the people. So doesn't didn't clarify that, but I think we can safely assume. Um, this is, was from a different random website that I got this description. Uh, people who engage in spiritual mapping name three levels of spiritual warfare. First, ground-level warfare involves casting demons out of individuals. Second, occult-level warfare engages more organized spiritual wickedness. The highest level, that of strategic-level warfare, directly battles territorial spirits who are said to rule over a larger geographic area. These territorial demons answer directly to Satan, are managers of a large area, and are sometimes referred to as strongmen. Um, so we'll talk more about that in a bit. We'll come back to that. Um, so yeah, that was the first, first item on that list, spiritual mapping and territorial spirits. Uh, deliverance ministries. So, you know, the... the I, uh, the whole premise behind deliverance ministries is the idea that demons are the cause of a wide range of physical, mental, emotional, and spiritual ills among believers. So if you're suffering from these things, then um, you, you, know, you need to be delivered from this demonic oppression. And uh, there are various uh, aspects to that. So, you know, you have all these demons in your system that, and you need to be cleansed from them. Uh, that's that's the premise behind it. Casting out demons um, is a big part of that. Um, binding demons uh, and things like that. Um, generational curses. That's often tied in with uh, with deliverance ministries uh, seeking uh, to break these generational curses. That um, uh, cleansing your home of objects infested by demons, um, overcoming demonic strongholds. And, you know, these are the sorts of things that often uh, are associated with deliverance ministries. So we'll talk more about those things uh, next time. Legal declarations and symbolic actions. So among some spiritual warfare proponents, there's, you know, kind of a... a you know, a vocabulary of legal terminology that you use when you're battling the demonic. Um, so I mentioned one of the tactics of trying to discover the name of the demon that you're trying to cast out because it's believed that 
you can, once you know the demon's name, then you can authoritatively, um, you know, more deftly cast it out, I guess. Uh, it gives you authority over the demon, so it's so is believed. Um, sometimes you hear believers doing things like inscribing Bible verses on a piece of wood and placing it in a strategic location to ward off demons or um, things like that, uh, having spiritual power and invested in um, objects. Um, another common one among messianics is shofars. <laughs> shofars, and, and not just in the messianic movement, but they're becoming more popular in charismatic churches too, where shofars are used as a weapon for spiritual warfare because it's believed that, by, that the sound of the shofar carries a spiritual power. Um, that can be used for spiritual warfare. Because in the Bible, shofars are used for physical warfare. So in charismatic churches, they believe you can use the shofar for spiritual warfare. You can blast demons out of the sky by blowing it the right way and things like that. So we'll talk more about that tomorrow as well. Um, it, you know... You have, I have to say the Messianic movement has been strongly influenced by a lot of these things. And of course, it depends on where you go in the Messianic movement. Uh, but a lot of Messianic congregations are essentially just charismatic churches that meet on Saturday with the addition of shofars and talits and Davidic dancing. Uh, and, you know, that's part of the history of the Messianic movement, especially the Messianic Jewish side of the movement. It came directly out of the charismatic movement. And so a lot of these things carried over into the movement as well. Um, and, you know, there's, there's a lot of aspects of that impact that are, you know, we should be grateful for. Um, it gave the uh, early messianic movement a strong desire to do things biblically, to do things Hebraically, and uh, even to this day, it's often the more charismatic churches that are more open to messianics than it is other churches. So um, that's one of the one of the natures of the charismatic movement. Um, yeah, so you see some of these things sometimes in messianic groups. Uh, Daria, it's. Um, too bad she just left, but she had a, an experience at a Messianic congregation in the States that she visited one time. Uh, and she, so this, this congregation, uh, they were very, very strong into spiritual warfare. Uh, it was very frequent that if uh, they would have, be casting out demons as part of their service, uh, they were very much into the spiritual mapping kind of thing. And so there was, uh, and, and, and some of it was, uh, I don't know, some of it was probably good, but some of it was a bit, at least to, to us, to Daria and to myself, alarming. Uh, there were some, they took it in ways that I think personally were a bit unhealthy. Um, so for example, there was one individual in, uh, this congregation that they would uh, somehow cause the evil spirits to manifest in him and they would use him almost as a way of channeling these spirits to try and communicate and get information about 
the demons and what demon was in charge of that area in order to try and bind it better. And uh, for some reason, it was always the same guy that would manifest these demons and he'd be flailing and thrashing and they'd have to hold him down. And um, then at the end, I think they'd cast it out of him. But then they do the same thing next week. And so it's, uh, yeah, that's, that's a little bit concerning to me at least. And um, then on the other hand, you, there were instances of things that are hard to explain. You know, people that struggled with an addiction or something like that and then had a demon cast out of them and suddenly it was gone, right? So there is stuff going on there and it seemed, at least to me, it seems kind of like a mixed bag, right? Like some of this stuff seems like there's positive fruit, but then some of it's like, that's just weird. Um, Daria said one time, well, when she was there, the leader came up to the front and he said, how many of you believe I'm holding a sword in my hand? So I've got this spiritual sword in my hand. And, and as he's talking and going on about it, he sweeps his hand across the audience and points it at everyone and then sweeps it back. And Daria said the moment it was pointing at her, her eyelids started fluttering out of control. And then as it passed, then it was gone. And then as it came back again, it did the same thing. So there's weird stuff happening there, right? It's not just people making it up. There's stuff going on, right? So is this the kind of spiritual power that we're supposed to be tapping into as believers, right? Should this be normal for us? Or is that, is that going in a direction that's not healthy, right? Is this, is this the kind of thing that when Paul's talking about putting on the armor of God, is this what he's talking about? Or is he talking about something very different? All right, so um, all that to say, spiritual warfare can mean a lot of different things to different people. <laughs> And in some cases, uh, I think it can get, go in directions that are uh, not necessarily good. Um, but we'll, we'll talk more about some of those other things next time. Uh, for the rest of the session today, I just I want to talk about this concept of territorial spirits. Um, where does this idea come from, that, that there are... Um, yeah, that there are spiritual entities in charge of uh, different locations. How many people have heard of this idea of territorial spirits? What, what do you know about it? Um, how, how does that work? I, I remember uh, I, I read somewhere someone once said, the Bible usually identifies a demon based on its geographical, the geographical area that it has authority over. For example, the Prince of Persia. And then he didn't have any other examples to give. <laughs> so so uh, yeah, that's kind of the only example in Daniel 10 uh, of explicitly identifying uh, a demon like that, but yeah. I want to look at a couple passages of scripture. 
Um, we'll start with Deuteronomy 32, verses 8 to 9. Actually, I want to get someone else to read this. If you have your Bible. Because I want to see what, uh, what different, how different translations put this. This is one of the one of the passages that supports the idea of territorial spirits. So, at the end of verse eight, there, um, how many people in their Bible it has according to the number of the sons of Israel? Does anyone's Bible have according to the number of the sons of God? None. This one does. ESV. ESV has that. <laughs> Okay, so it's taking it as talking about the sons of Israel. So there is a text-critical uh, thing going on here that the Masoretic text, which is the traditional Hebrew Bible used by the Jewish people, that the oldest manuscripts we have are from around a thousand years ago. Uh, the Masoretic text says, according to the number of the sons of Israel, the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation, has according to the number of the sons of God. And when they discovered the Dead Sea Scrolls, they found out the Dead Sea Scrolls actually agrees with the Septuagint, according to the number of the sons of God. So, what's going on there? Well, we're not exactly sure, <laughs> but... Uh, what was the number of the sons of Israel that came into Egypt, according to Genesis? That, well, the ones that came into Egypt. Oh, sorry, seven. Yeah, 70, right. And how many nations are there? Seventy. 70. So there's 70, descendants, uh, 70 sons of Israel coming into Egypt. There's 70 nations. So that's kind of uh, one of the ideas of where the idea where 70 nations came from, right? If you take the other reading as sons of God, that changes it a little bit. Uh, because in the book of Job, who are the sons of God? They're angels. Yeah. Talks about how the sons of God would appear in heaven in God's throne room before him. And, and Satan was there too, right? He was, you know, among their number. And it was like a, a it's kind of like a courtroom setting, right? You know, here's the, or the, the town council kind of picture. You think of an ancient, ancient town council, city council meeting sort of thing. <laughs> Sometimes at a city council meeting, it feels like Satan's there. <laughs> um, yeah, so, so he fixed the borders of the people according to the number of the sons of God. So this is assuming that there are 70 sons of God. Why, why would that be significant? What's the number of Israel's council, Israel's Supreme Court? 70, right? The, uh, the Sanhedrin, well, I mean, yeah. The Sanhedrin is an attempt to follow or recreate the wilderness assembly um, of the Council of 70, right? The Supreme Court is being a Council of 70. So Israel has this council of 70, and that's mirrored in the spiritual realm by God's divine council of 70, right? Where God is, is at the head, and there's these 70 sons of God 
that formed this, this council of sorts, right? And so he fixed the borders of the peoples according to the number of the sons of God, but the Lord's portion is his people. Jacob has allotted heritage. So this actually, uh, this passage um, is one of the places where the idea that there is a, uh, a you know, this council of angelic beings, these 70 angels that represent the 70 nations of mankind, right? So every nation has, every nation of the 70 nations has an angelic representative in the heavenlies, and who's Israel's representative according to this verse? God, God himself. All the other nations just have an angel representing them, but Israel has God representing them. So that's one of the passages. Let's turn to, let's see, do we want to do Psalm 58 or 82? Does it matter? Let's start with Psalm 58. In verse 1, it says, Do you indeed decree what is right, you gods? Do you judge the children of man uprightly? No, in your hearts you devise wrongs, your hands deal out violence on earth. So, um, one of the backgrounds behind the way most people would interpret this verse is that the in Hebrew, the word that you know, the word God, in the Torah, there's a place where that's applied to the judges, right? Because the judges are meant to represent God. Um, so the, the plural gods is used of the judges. And so this, the idea is that this, this verse is addressed to judges. Some have taken this verse as addressed not to earthly judges, but to the heavenly judges of these 70 nations, do you decree what is right to you gods? Do you judge the children of man uprightly? Um, I'm not convinced that's necessarily what that verse means. But let's go to Psalm 82. This one, it comes out a little more strongly. And we'll see some themes, hopefully, that we recognize. Psalm 82, God has taken his place in the divine council. This sounds like Job chapter 1, right? In the midst of the gods, he holds judgment. How long will you judge unjustly and show partiality to the wicked? Selah. Give justice to the weak and the fatherless. Maintain the right of the afflicted and the destitute. Rescue the weak and the needy. Deliver them from the hand of the wicked. They have neither knowledge nor understanding. They walk about in darkness. All the foundations of the earth are shaken. I said, you are gods, son of the most high, all of you. Nevertheless, like men, you shall die and fall like any prince. Arise, O God, judge the earth, for you shall inherit the nations. Now, there are a couple ways of interpreting this psalm, but given what we just talked about, it is interesting to think of it in light of the tradition. And by the way, this is a Jewish tradition too, um, a Jewish tradition that there are angelic, there are angels representing all the different nations. So this is an example of, you know, this divine council meeting together, and God has a case against all these angels who are representing the nations. Why? Because of how the nations have treated Israel. 
right? God is condemning all the nations through their angelic representatives as not upholding justice. And how does the verse end? Arise, O God, and judge the earth, for you shall inherit all the nations. I mean, that's, that's a pretty powerful message if we understand this as these angelic representatives didn't do a good job, and so God's firing them <laughs> and taking over their job. He's becoming the king of all the nations, not just of Israel. Kind of a cool message, actually. Anyway, so this is, this is related to the idea of uh, there being um, angels or spirits that are in charge of each of the nations. Okay, let's go to the more famous passage, uh, Daniel chapter 10. This is a passage most people think of when, when we talk about territorial spirits, and for good reason. Daniel 10, we'll start in verse 12. Uh, let's actually start, well, so, you know, the chapter starts where Daniel ha is going through this partial fast for three weeks, and he's praying and fasting and uh, doing all this stuff, and then this angel comes and appears to him, finally, at the end of the three weeks, and he's, uh, you know, overpowered by this, this angelic visitation. And in verse 12, Then the angel said to me, Fear not, Daniel, for from the first day that you set your heart to understand and humbled yourself before God, your words have been heard, and I have come because of your words. The prince of the kingdom of Persia withstood me 21 days. But Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me, for I was left there with the kings of Persia and came to make you understand what is to happen to your people in the latter days, for the vision is for days yet to come. So there's this, this messenger from, came, is, was sent by God to deliver this message to Daniel, and he's detained for three weeks by this mysterious prince of the kingdom of Persia and the kings of Persia. So what is that about? I mean, the, the message that, as, as readers, we're supposed to take away from this is that it's thanks to Daniel's perseverance in fasting and praying that he actually got this message, right? If Daniel had given up after the first two days and been like, oh, I guess God doesn't have a message for me, he would have missed out on this, right? And so uh, part of it is an encouragement to persist in prayer, right? Uh, let's skip down to verse 20. Then he said, do you know why I have come to you? And he doesn't answer the question right away. But now I will return to fight against the prince of Persia. And when I go out, behold, the prince of Greece will come. So there's another, another prince here. But I will tell you what is inscribed in the book of truth. There is none who contends by my side against these except Michael, your prince. So now suddenly... Israel has a prince too, Michael, one of the chief angels. And down in uh, chapter 12, verse 1, it says it again. At that time shall arise Michael, the great prince who has charge of your people. And it goes on. So there's, 
what this sounds like is there are these angelic, I mean, these maybe are the same angelic representatives that we were reading about in the other passages. Um, one of them represented Persia, so the, the angel representing Persia, the angel representing Greece, and then now we have, we're introduced to Michael, the angel that represents Israel, who's in charge of Israel. So, Based on this, it suggests that there are these supernatural beings that are in charge of different nations. And uh, it, we know for sure Persia, Greece, and Israel each have one of, one of them. And the ones for Persia and Greece seem to be kind of antagonistic towards the messenger, who might be Gabriel. I don't think it says explicitly what his name is, but that might be the angel Gabriel. And Michael. The Prince of Israel. All right. I want to look at one other passage. Um, turn to Genesis 28, starting in verse 10. This is not a passage you typically hear Christians point to when they're talking about territorial spirits, but it's one that at least some of the Jewish people saw as very relevant to that topic. Genesis 28, starting in verse 10, says, Jacob left Beersheba and went toward Haran, and he came to a certain place and stayed there that night because the sun had set. Taking one of the stones of the place, he put it under his head and lay down in that place to sleep. And he dreamed, and behold, there was a ladder set up on the earth, and the top of it reached to heaven. And behold, the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. Uh, we'll stop there. Um, so this is probably a familiar passage from the Torah where Jacob arrives at Bethel, he later calls the place Bethel, Bethel, and has this dream of Jacob's ladder, right? And the angels ascending and descending on it. Now, um, there is a detail of that description that most of us probably overlook, but that really perplexed the rabbis. And that was, why does it say that the angels first ascended and then descended? I mean, if the angels come from God in heaven, it would make sense for it to say the angels were descending and ascending, right? Because first they, they have to come from God and then go back up. So why the reverse order? And there are actually several different explanations that have been put forward for why it might be this way. But I want to read one of them to you that is kind of interesting. This is from Midrash Tanhuma, and it goes like this. And behold, the angels of God ascending and descending. That's quoting the Bible verse, and then it goes on with an explanation. These are the princes of the heathen nations, which God showed Jacob our father. The prince of Babylon ascended 70 steps and descended. The prince of Media, 52 steps and descended. The prince of Greece, 100 steps and descended. The prince of Edom ascended, and no one knows how many. In that hour, Jacob was afraid and said, Peradventure, this one has no descent? Said the Holy One, blessed be he to him quoting Jeremiah 30, verse 10, Therefore fear thou not, O my servant Jacob, neither be dismayed, O Israel. 
goes on, even if thou seest him, so to speak, ascend and sit by me, thence will I bring him down. As it is stated, Obadiah 1.4, Though thou exalt thyself as the eagle, and thou set thy nest among the stars, thence will I bring thee down, saith the Lord. Okay, there's a lot packed into this little verse, uh, this little passage. <laughs> um, so, what does, according to this version of interpreting this story, what do the angels represent? These are, these are not just ordinary angels that Jacob sees. These are the angelic representatives of the different nations. And what's the first one that goes up? He sees the prince of Babylon going up 70 steps and then coming down. That represents the ascendancy to dominance of the kingdom of Babylon over Israel, right? And then the prince of Media, Persia, sends 52 steps and then comes down. So, you know, Persia, Media, uh, the Medes and the Persians, they achieve dominance over Israel for a period of time, but then, but then it ends. They, they come down too, Right? Their, their dominance does not last forever. Then the prince of Greece goes a hundred steps. Like this is even higher. This is like unprecedented. The, the dominion that it exercised over Israel and then it goes down, right? And then Edom or Edom. This is a code word. Code name for what? Rome. For Rome. That's right. The rabbis in, in rabbinic literature, they often refer to Rome as Edom or Edom. Probably so they don't get executed for talking about Rome and saying nasty things about Rome. Uh, so yeah, they call it Edom. And what happens? So, so you can tell when this Midrash was written, right? This Midrash was written during the height of Jewish persecution under the Roman Empire. And so in this version, Jacob sees Rome going higher and higher and higher and higher, and he doesn't see an end to the climb of this domineering evil empire. And he's terrified, right? And what does God say? You know, even if, as if it were possible, this prince of Rome were able to ascend all the way up to my throne and sit beside me, even from there I bring him down. And, and where does he quote? The book of Obadiah, which is a prophecy against Edom, which the rabbis interpret as talking about Rome, the fall of Rome. So this, this little midrash is trying to tease out of this passage in Genesis a prophecy of the fall of Rome, which at the time this was written looked unrealistic. Like, how could this ever happen? But they had faith that one day Rome would fall because God would come to the aid of his people. Um, so I, I think this is a fascinating passage for multiple reasons, but uh, not least of which is the idea of these angelic representatives of the nations. And what's being played out here is these foreign empires rising to dominance over Israel, and God brings them down. And I think that's what Daniel 10 is talking about. Why did the prince of Persia try and fight against this angelic messenger? 
because Persia wants to have dominance over Israel. Persia was, doesn't want to be brought down on the ladder, right? And the same with Greece. So that's why there's this war going on. It's played out in the real world through the rise and fall of these empires, these dynasties, these, um, these foreign oppressors of Israel. So the latter symbolizes the history of mankind, the individual angel princes representing various nations, and the nations mentioned here are the four, four nations from Daniel's vision. Well, first from, the, from Nebuchadnezzar's vision of the statue, right? You've got the head of gold is Babylon, then the bronze uh, torso is um, the next one. It's after Babylon, Media here, what they mentioned, Persia, the Persians and the Medes. Then next you've got the silver, which is Greece. Then next you've got Rome, which they call Edom here. And then Daniel has a vision later of four beasts, and it's the same thing, these four successive uh, empires. And uh, this, this uh, theme of the four empires uh, had a big impact on rabbinic theology and has a really big impact on the book of Revelation too, by the way. Revelation is all about the fall of Rome, uh, very much in line with what this Midrash is trying to say. And Revelation was also written at the height of a persecution under the dominance of the evil Roman Empire. <laughs> so you know, at first glance, this explanation seems like it has nothing to do with Jacob's actual vision of a ladder, <laughs> and maybe it doesn't, but it gives us a window into how... Uh, these things were interpreted, and, and this idea of what, what does it mean that there's angelic representatives of nations? What does it mean that there's this divine council with the 70, 70 members of the council? Each of these nations is destined to descend, right? The final messianic kingdom, however, would never descend. And that's, um, that's I think, what Daniel 10 is getting at as well. What was Daniel praying about when he's fasting and praying? He's praying for the restoration of Israel, right? And that's why the prince of Persia is opposing this message and not wanting the messenger to get to Daniel with this message of the restoration of Israel because it means the downfall of Persia. The destiny of Israel, we could say, is fought out in the spiritual world. Okay, there's a couple other passages I want to look at quick. We don't have to spend too much time on these, but these are kind of related to what we're talking about, so we might as well get through them now. 2 Samuel 5, 23-24. Uh, these are examples of angelic warfare, more or less. We'll, we'll talk about um, the significance of each of these passages. So 2 Samuel 5... David is fighting against the Philistines and God gives him a specific instructions about how to defeat them. So in verse 23, it says, When David inquired of the Lord, he said, You shall not go up, uh, go around to their rear and come against them opposite the balsam trees. And when you hear the sound of marching in the tops of the balsam trees, then rouse yourself, for the then the Lord has gone out before you to strike down the army of the Philistines. And 
he did as the Lord commanded, and he had a victory over them. So uh, this isn't doesn't specifically mention angels fighting, but the the idea is that God's army is there marching with Israel, right? There's it's not just Israel fighting alone. God sends his angels to fight for Israel. The next passage is 2 Kings 6, 11 to 17. Uh, this is another well-known passage. So the mind of the king of Syria was greatly troubled. Uh, so, the, uh, so the king of Syria keeps trying to uh, attack the king of Israel and keeps getting thwarted. And uh, the king of Assyria is getting upset about this. He's like, what's going on here? Um, he called his servants and said to them, will you not show me who of us is for the king of Israel? He's like, someone's leaking information to the king of Israel, right? And one of his servants said, none, my lord, O king, but Elisha, the prophet who is in Israel, tells the king of Israel the words that you speak in your bedroom. <laughs> Elisha is the informant, and somehow through God's uh, empowering him prophetically, he's able to uh, tell the king of Israel what the king of Syria whispers in his bedroom. And he said to him, go and see where he is, that I may send and seize him. It was told, behold, he is in Dothan. So he sent their horses and chariots and a great army, and they came by night and surrounded the city. When the servant of the man of God rose early in the morning and went out, behold, an army with horses and chariots was all around the city. And the servant said, Alas, my master, what shall we do? He said, Do not be afraid, for those who are with us are more than those who are, who are with them. Then Elisha prayed and said, O Lord, please open his eyes that he may see. So the Lord opened the eyes of the young man, and he saw, and behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. And uh, yeah, that's, that's far enough. So Elisha's servant is granted just a brief glimpse beyond the veil, right, to see the spiritual realities that are there. And what does he see? God's army fighting for his people, right? And of course, if we've been reading through Second Kings, we should recognize chariots and horses of fire from a story just a little bit before this, where uh, Elijah is taken up to heaven in a whirlwind. By the way, I always was taught that Elijah was taken up to heaven in a chariot of fire, but it doesn't say that. It says he was taken up in the whirlwind. The chariot of fire just came and separated Elisha and Elijah, uh, chariots and horses of fire. And, but but it's, it's interesting, in that story, what does Elisha say? This is in 2 Kings 2. This is a rabbit trail, but whatever. 2 Kings 2, verse 11 as they still went on and talked, behold, chariots of fire and horses of fire separated the two of them, and Elisha went up by a whirlwind into heaven. And Eli Elijah went up by a whirlwind into heaven. And Elisha saw it and cried, My father, my father, the chariots of Israel and his horsemen. He recognized that this is God's army defending the chariots and horsemen of Israel. 
Anyway, we won't go down that rabbit trail anymore. Okay, uh, Daniel 10, we already looked at that, but here we see these angels striving, right? Uh, the Prince of Persia and, and uh, the angelic messenger and Michael, they're fighting against each other, right? Revelation 12. We'll look quickly at that. Revelation 12, verse 7. And this will be our last. Now war arose in heaven, Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought back, but he was defeated, and there was no longer any place for them in heaven, and the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient, ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth and his angels were thrown down with him. So there's a description of a battle taking place in heaven. So two of these passages, these first two passages, describe God's angelic army fighting on behalf of Israel. And that warfare is, for the most part, invisible to human eyes. But it's played out in the, the very visible physical victory of Israel over their enemies militarily, right? These other two passages describe these wars that take place in heaven between angelic forces, uh, or struggles at least taking place between these angelic forces. And while there are, there are consequences for what happens on earth, this is... Uh, it's not a battle that we see people on earth engaging in, if that makes sense, at least not directly. So the Bible depicts a spiritual world that stands behind the physical world we experience with our senses. Political and military rising and falling is paralleled in the angelic sphere, and only rarely do humans get a peek behind the veil. But I guess where I'm going with this for our purposes in this session, is this is not a battle we wage. In none of the biblical places is this a war we personally fight in, in the heavenlies, right? Uh, Daniel, in Daniel chapter 10, is not praying to bind Satan and his forces or to bind the prince of Persia or, you know, to help Michael. He's praying for Israel, Right? So he's praying for the realities that we see on earth, and these prayers have effects that affect the spiritual realm, but it's one level removed, right? Does that make sense? We never see anyone in Scripture. Uh, I guess what I'm trying to say is these passages portray a different aspect of what we might call territorial spirits, than the way that term is usually used today, right? Today, uh, territorial spirits is usually a, applied to geographical locations rather than political entities. In the Bible, it's more political. It's more about empires rising and falling, and it always has Israel at the center of its focus, uh, which is different than a lot of the tactics you see used today. In spiritual warfare, you know, we never see the apostles marching into a city in, in the book of Acts, for example, and start binding the territorial demons in order to better evangelize the place. That's not something they ever did, right? Even in the case where uh, there is that, that girl 
who was fortune telling through the power of this evil spirit. It wasn't until she was wearing Paul out like crazy and he couldn't stand her anymore that he cast her out. It wasn't, he wasn't out there going on the offensive, casting out every possible demon out of every nook and cranny that he could find. So what we see in scripture is quite different than the idea of demons wielding power over certain places. So just to summarize, the Bible does suggest that there are spiritual entities behind the political entities we see in our world. And these, uh, but th that's a little different than the idea of location-based demons, right? There's a bit of a distinction there, I think. Uh, the Bible also describes angelic warfare and in two different contexts, one in which God's angels assist Israel supernaturally in their physical warfare, and the other is in which angels wage war against Satan and his forces in the heavenly realms. In neither of those cases is there any biblical instruction or expectation that we are to directly engage in that heavenly warfare ourselves. The spiritual battles that take place in the heavenlies mirror the political changes that we see in the physical world. And in my opinion, there's no need to strategize by trying to pray for the spiritual realities as though we should be like figuring out, okay, what's the name of the different angels that are fighting up there right now? Let's try and pray for the good ones and pray against the bad ones. And We don't see any of that in the Bible, right? Um, Daniel was praying for Israel, not for the Archangel Michael. And, but when we pray for the physical forces that we see on earth, there, there are spiritual effects that we don't see, right? Or occasionally maybe a human is granted a glimpse beyond the veil to see those spiritual effects. So, does that make sense so far? Thanks for listening to this audio teaching. The goal of Segula is to cast a vision for a healthy and mature Messianic Torah movement. This series of teachings on the Ruach HaKodesh, the Holy Spirit, is made possible through the help of our ministry partners and supporters. For more information about this ministry, please visit www.segula.net. May the Father richly bless you as you seek Him, and together may we all become a glorious people in Messiah. Thank you.